Podcast of the Cinema. You're the host. Uh, your name is Alonzo Duralde. It's true. I'm the other host. My name is Dave White. Also true. We're both film critics. Um, Alonzo Duralde is working on a book right now. It's very mm. exciting. And uh, it in that 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 situation, you and the book informs today's episode <laughs> uh, quite a bit because what's going to happen is. Much like the episode that we did, what, a week or two ago, whenever it was, with Kristen Lopez? Yes. Uh, We have another guest today. We bring it here, folks. And uh, the first chunk of the show is going to be our time with that guest. Then we're going to say goodbye to that guest, eject eject him from the (laughs) the podcast. And then we're going to finish it up. That second half is basically going to be me uh, talking about the things I've seen because Alonzo's writing a book. <laughs> it's a very important book. And so, so... I'm seeing big dumb stuff for all of my other podcasts. <laughs> so Dave gets to watch the cool indies. <laughs> uh, anyway, so today we have a very special guest, a dear friend whom we love very much. And has been on the show before. Has been on the show before. Uh, his name is Johnny Jungle Guts. He's an artist and a writer. And he used to live in Los Angeles with his husband, Nambius. And then they abandoned us and moved to New Jersey, where they run the entire state. I've seen the Instagram information <laughs> about this uh, scenario, and they do, in fact, run the entire place. Now, the reason Johnny's here today is to talk about two uh, major wide releases in the cinema at the moment. Uh, The first one is Dungeons and Dragons. Honor Among Thieves. Honor Among Thieves. I couldn't remember the full title. The other one is, is it just called? The Super Mario Brothers movie. The Super Mario Brothers movie. Not the same thing as the Super Mario Brothers movie of the 90s. Right. This is a cartoon. There's no Bob Hoskins in this one. Sadly. There is no John Leguizamo. There is no Mojo Nixon. No, none of that. If your movie don't have Mojo Nixon, then your movie could use some fixing, (laughs) to quote the song. And um, so Johnny is an expert at these things. Johnny's an expert on both of these things, and particularly the Dungeons and Dragons. angle of it all before they moved away Johnny presented me with a gift as I just said he is an artist and um, he gave us a giant piece of art that is a uh, a Dungeons and Dragons uh, do we call it a board I don't know the terminology map a map Dungeons and Dragons map 
but featuring uh, Susie Ormond and Amanda Chantal Bacon. <laughs> if anybody doesn't know who Amanda Chantal Bacon is, you're just going to have to go Google that. You could also Google the words moon juice. <laughs> that is the, the, uh, the beautifying herbal powder blend establishment owned, operated, and originated by Wellness Queen. You thought it was Gwyneth Paltrow. It's not. It's Amanda Chantal Bacon. What we're saying is Johnny is a committed DM when he creates his world. That is right. And I will cherish this. Uh, also framed, by the way, framed it for us before leaving. This beautiful uh, uh, work that is now in our office guiding us through our daily routines. Anyway, welcome to the show, Johnny. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It was uh, Dave who first introduced me to Amanda Chantal Bacon's yeah. work and diet. And so <laughs> I felt like he deserved this uh, treasured piece of artwork. And in this context, is she a wizard? She is a wizard. She's yeah. an abjuration wizard, which means she makes force fields because everything disgusts her. Everything. <laughs> all around. It's going to kill her. All the poisons and all the food and the air. And Whenever everything. she walks past an In-N-Out burger. Right, exactly. She has to put yeah. those force fields up. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know your D&D. You know your Super Mario. And so, we really desperately need your expertise here because... Uh, Dave did not see these movies, and tragically, I did. Um, no, actually, <laughs> I, I enjoyed the D&D movie. I'll, I'll, I'll say that up front. But in both cases, I felt very underqualified. Like, the last time I played D&D was in the late 70s, when it was new and aggressively uncool. Like, now all the hip comedians are doing it, and, you know... Joe Manganiello. Yes. When someone you, who looks like Joe Manganiello is doing it, you've entered a new territory. Exactly. And so, so you know, I, 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 there was a legitimate dorkiness attached to it back when I did it. So the, the, there was literally just one Easter egg in the whole movie that I got. But I, I'm figuring you're going to walk us through some other ones. Uh, but I've never played a second of Super Mario. So my entire frame of reference is the terrible 1993 movie and a song that Jellyfish did for a compilation album called White Knuckle Scorin. But um, I don't really even know what that is. But uh, it, it's a song that involves like... Uh, Princess Peach and uh, and Bowser and uh, apparently uses a lot of sound effects from the game, but it goes right over my head. Um, so let's let's start with Super Mario Brothers because that is like the movie that is setting the box office on fire this weekend. It is it is the movie that they thought Tenet was going to be as far as getting people back into theaters. Apparently, uh, what you know they really wanted a kickstart theatrical exhibition. Apparently, what the world really wanted was an animated feature based on a video game. Yes, and Alonzo, I could describe the plot of this movie, but I'm more fascinated by how you would describe the plot of this movie, having no previous knowledge of Mario. Okay, I'll give you my best shot. All right, so the Mario brothers, Mario and Luigi, are plumbers in Brooklyn, and uh, they have really thick Italian accents, except that they don't. But they do in a TV commercial for some reason, just so we can hear Chris Pratt say, it's a me, Mario. Um, they uh, they used to work for some other guy who's a jerk named Spike or something. Uh, but they're, they're struggling to get their business off the ground. Uh, there is a flood in Brooklyn. And so they go into the sewers to try and fix it. 
And instead, they find this uh, green tube that whisks them off to another direct, another dimension. Um, along the way, they get separated. Luigi lands in a very dark place that is overseen by a turtle dragon named um, Bowser, voiced by Jack Black. Uh, Luigi is voiced by Charlie Day, by the way. And uh, Mario lands in a mushroom kingdom that is lorded over by the human uh, Princess Peach. Um, Bowser wants to take over the mushroom kingdom and marry her. They can only fight back if they can get the Kong army to join them. So they, then Mario has to face down Donkey Kong in the arena. Donkey Kong is voiced by uh, uh, Seth Rogen. Princess Peach is Anya Taylor-Joy. And, uh, you know, there's a, it, it, both of these movies, because they're both based on games are very questy. Um, oh yeah. There's not a lot of side anything or time for character development. It's really all go to the place and get the thing. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, uh, was kind of bored admittedly through this movie because it doesn't really, I think it kind of coasts on the fact that you, that most audiences know who these characters are and what these worlds are and just are thrilled to see them on the big screen. And, um, yeah, I, I, I didn't particularly get engaged with it. And, and I have to say, the, I, went, I went on opening night. It was a full audience. They applauded the Nintendo logo at the beginning. So I thought, okay, this is, these are the, the hardcore fans. If they like respond to something and I don't get what it is, I'm going to remember it so that I can ask Johnny later what this thing was. But they were pretty quiet for the entire movie, with the exception of like the Donkey Kong arena battle. They didn't respond a lot, but then they all applauded at the end. And I'm like, okay, well, that that felt dutiful at best. Um, so yeah, I, I, I did not dig it. And, and my impression from this room of, of, of very excited fans was they weren't super into it either. Uh, how, what was your take, sir? Uh, well, I, not to get into binaries here, but I think that I agree with you in that this movie had very little to offer in terms of character development or uh, having anything to say. And I was thinking about it a lot in comparison to especially the very first Sonic the Hedgehog movie, <laughs> which kind of had uh, much stronger stuff going on in both those departments and was also kind of a, a message about like nuclear disarmament and the oh. military industrial complex. Uh, and by the second Sonic movie, I even was starting to really care about the like tertiary human characters. Whereas Mario did not make an effort for any of that. That being yeah. said, every minute of this movie every ringtone that you hear on mario's phone every movement of mario's body everything you see in the background is lifted from some moment of gameplay in a mario game and that's kind of something you could say about both the films right. we're talking about today um but i think that mario it it wasn't that I didn't, like, in, enjoy some moments of the movie, but it, it was just thinking about it contextually within the rest of all the Mario stuff that's going on. It's like, when you make a movie, there's always, like, the t-shirts and the action figures and the tie-in comic books, 
But in a weird way, this movie feels like the tie-in t-shirt to a a video game that's, like, (laughs) bigger than it, you know? Like, the video game industry is now, like, several times larger than the Hollywood film industry. And so it has this weird, different relationship that, like, hasn't really existed in film in the past. And this is also, like, coming at a time when The Last of Us TV show is is been really hot. So they're starting to show that you can adapt video games to film successfully. I don't know if this is an example of that for a number of reasons. One, uh, Chris Pratt's New York on and off New York accent was flustering to me. He's a little too corn fed, honestly, to play Mario, in my (laughs) opinion. And it's funny because I always think of Mario as almost like one of those classic cartoon characters like uh, maybe like Betty Boop or Felix the Cat or something like that, where there's not a lot of dialogue, like in-depth dialogue. The story's told mostly visually. Right, he's a physical presence. And Mario's original voice actor, Charles Martinet, is all over this movie, you know, playing members of Mario's family, people in the background. And that's this, and Charles is a very stereotypical Italian performance that's been going. I, I, I don't I'm kind of surprised. I've never heard about like, you know, like the Italian community speaks out against Mario. But anyway, um, you know, as a kid, it's very like, thank you so much for playing my game. It's a me, you know, like, it's like relentless of that. But also not because main characters in video games very rarely talk that much sure. um but anyway so yeah didn't love chris pratt also i i do feel though like i'm coming at this with specifically the character of princess peach like i remember you had a guy on when uh the judy renee zellweger movie came out and he had all these problems with the movie because he knew all these like little specific minute details about judy's life and I feel like I'm like that with Peach a little bit. Like <laughs> I'm like a Princess Peach super fan. And so like and when someone's a super fan of something and something new comes along, it's always hard to really impress them. Sure. That being said, I, I was a little bit confused by the fact that they cast Anya Taylor-Joy, who's like I think like 26, in a movie where all the other actors are men in their 40s and 50s. Uh, cause Princess Peach, she's a princess, but she's, she's a grown woman, but also she kind of always sounds like she's on Quaaludes a little bit. Like she's got a very like gentle, airy, like, Oh, Mario, come to the castle. I just baked a cake for you. Like, it's like alien saw a blueprint of the damsel in distress trope and tried to like make a human being in a lab, which I like, it's a very draggy, which I love, but obviously you want to have a good role model for little girls. And so you see in this movie, they don't have Princess Peach getting captured really that much. It's more about rescuing Luigi, who Charlie Day, Charlie Day is really good at playing nervous and anxious, which is Luigi's thing. You know, like all of his games are based around like haunted houses, which you see in this movie, like everything in the movie is like, is like refracting off of something that happened in the game. Uh, I, I saw a review that said that that they they make it a point not to make Princess Peach you know get stuck with the usual the girl role in movies like this, but instead they give that to Luigi. Yeah, and and that was definitely a smart choice. I just feel like we could have had a little bit more because also Princess Peach has this thing. It's kind of like this Peggy Bundy thing of like 
I sort of seem like a bimbo, but I'm actually really smart, you know, like, oh, did I win that kart race? Like, that kind of thing. Right. And, um, but, you know, uh, I feel like I'm, I could also be splitting atoms because I am that peach, that peach super fan. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I will say of these two, there was two moments in this movie where I did tear up a little bit. I will admit to that. The first was when they use the star power up. And, uh, for those of you who don't know in Mario games, when you get touch a magic superstar, they're called, you become invincible. And that's sort of portrayed since the mid two thousands as being sort of surrounded your body becomes surrounded in this rainbow light. And when this happens to Mario and Luigi in the movie, they do this thing where they, they're they running and they stick their hands out to the side and they have like, like almost like they're flying, like sort of mimicking this like flying motion and their like fingers are pointed like straight up to the sky, which is something they do in the games too. And it's just this very beautiful and for me, like very queer gesture of these beings in rainbow light doing these little hand motions. And I think I like that. I think, um, you know, in game theory, they have this, uh, expression, which is playing queerly. And I think I always played Mario games queerly a little bit and saw it as this, like, almost like the world. And there's something different that happens, you know, when you read a book or a movie you can get really invested in the characters and feel really wrapped up in the world. But when you're playing a video game and you make Mario do a flip and you're sitting next to your friend, you might say, I just did a flip. I I did a flip. There's this weird mirror stage thing that's happening where you are the person in the game a little bit. And so, so then I feel like, you know, as a kid growing up and maybe it's a little bit of a gay thing. Mario was, it was like my safe space. You know, I could go to this colorful world of like rainbows and, you know, you get and dress up like a cat or a raccoon and, and fly around, you know? And then also just like, there's, I feel like there's this weird politics to all those characters. Like Bowser's kind of got this like dungeon daddy energy. And then like, <laughs> Luigi's kind of the otter, Mario's the bear, and then Toad is, like, always waiting on Peach, like he's her, like, twink makeup artist. <laughs> I also was wondering, I feel like they almost added, they did some voice modulation, because, I mean, Keegan-Michael Key and Jack Black are great actors, but they real like, I've never heard Keegan-Michael Key go that high on his voice, and I've never heard Jack Black go that deep, and I also think Jack Black was kind of the star of the show here a little bit. Well, especially when that, he sings, you know. Yeah, because yeah, because he can do his tenacious D heavy metal thing as Bowser. Right. Um, but anyway, so and then the other uh, moment of the film I teared up a little bit was uh, at the very end. They play just a first of all. There's way too many needle, like way too many eighty songs in this movie. Mm. It's it's you oh, were relentlessly air. <laughs> yeah, uh, you do not get a break from like take on me and holding out for a hero and and like there could have been a few less of those in the yeah. movie i feel like but at the very end retire, they play i think we what need were to retire holding out, i'm sorry i think we need to retire holding out for a hero for like five years maybe just because i think movies go to it so easily for like the montage where the person is going to become heroic like it's 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 it is the new uh I got you, I feel good, <laughs> you know, in terms of overuse in films, but that's just me. 
Oh yeah, no, there Sorry was and take on me also. Also yes. Anyway, at, sorry, the, go ahead. Uh, this at the, the end very the end of the movie, they play a little bit of, uh, I think, ELO's Mr. Blue Sky. Yes. And what that's referencing is this fan-made video where someone laid that song over a commercial for, I think, Super Smash Brothers, which is a game Mario is also the star of. And uh, it was kind of just like going back to what I was talking about. Well, first of all, I love when they're can be something that is made by fans that then influences the actual uh content of right. the of the the main work because it sort of sh- it sort of reverts to a more primal era of storytelling where we're all sort of being influenced by by each other's work whether we're you know the millionaire making the movie or the like you know teenager at home just making a YouTube video that ends up going viral and uh, it also that, you know, Mr. Blue Sky, it's like the perfect day. Like, that's how you, that's, I mean, first of all, shout outs to the god Shigeru Miyamoto who created this game and so many Nintendo games and Hot Take, I think, is like more of an imaginative genius than like Walt Disney even. Because when you step into those games, you, you, you can, like, I, sometimes I really do get that feeling of like peace, you know, that Mr. Blue Sky feeling of peace. So, so I will say that, that even though I didn't think it was a very good movie, it still got me twice because I'm just that in love with Mario. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, I think the the most of the people who are packing in to see this thing do have, if not your level of familiarity with the game, a level of familiarity with the game. And, you know, if they leave feeling satisfied, then I guess, you know, Illumination has done its job because, you know, I don't think they're, you know, this is kind of like a faith-based movie. They're not necessarily out to proselytize, but they are out to make the people who are already on board you know, feel better and, and, and recognize elements that they want to hear about. So, um, yeah, you know, if, if, if they lost me, they don't care as long as, it, <laughs> as, long as all the yous out there leave feeling, you know, seen and, and appreciated, you know. I guess. I mean, I do think that there's something to be said for just, you know, like, yeah, okay, there's a million references to all these things in video games, but, like, what exactly does that all it doesn't when it doesn't add up to something as a creative work you know it for sure yeah yeah the i mean the ideal here obviously is to like you you make something that that you know has a the occasional wink or shout out to the the original property but then just tells this amazing story i mean like last of us perfect example never played the game, don't know anything about it. And I was completely subsumed into that show. And then I would find out later, oh, well, this is a reference to that, or this character does this, or this voice actor plays this supporting character. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. But I didn't need to know any of that to enjoy the show. Yeah, the funny thing is I heard they were going to do a Last of Us TV show like 10 years ago. I think it was in a lot of developmental hell for a long time. Mm. And when I heard that they were doing it, I got so mad because I was like this already is like an incredible work of storytelling that like subverts all these tropes about like zombie movies and all this stuff and it's already so filmic and they absolutely proved me wrong by adding all kinds of new layers to it yeah I you know I have to say going into that show I was like oh it's a video game adaptation oh and it's about zombies you know those were two big hurdles for me but you know it cleared them with ease and grace because you know, by episode three, I was completely, you know, totally on board for it all. Um, 
So yeah, but I, I imagine that you know they're already thinking sequel here because we we didn't even get to Wario yet, which I know is a thing. <laughs> I'm sure they're saving that for the subsequent chapters. And Yoshi, Yoshi wasn't in this movie at all, which really oh he was in it like in the background in one part, but uh, I was surprised that wasn't a big piece of it. Well, they're not they're not going to give you a, give away the whole story yet. They have right. a whole you know right. thing in mind. <laughs> the universe to consider here. Oh boy, yeah. So weirdly enough, you know, there was a there was the, the bad '90s Super Mario movie. There was also a bad '2000s Dungeons and Dragons movie. There was, yeah, with uh, Jeremy no... Irons and Thora Birch. And I'm sure I saw it and reviewed it, and I have no memory. Yeah, of it. and and Owens and yeah, um, Owens brother. Yeah. yeah, I've never seen it, but I've heard it's dreadful. It's pretty um, bad. I've never seen it either, so I guess I shouldn't say that. But I heard it was really bad. Uh, but this new, this new one is from the directors of Game Night, which was the main thing that made me excited to see it because I really love that movie, even though they have previously done other stuff I was not crazy about, including the Vacation reboot and the Horrible Bosses movies. Um, so, uh, Johnny, give us, a in, in a nutshell, what, what is uh, Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves about? Okay, so the plot of this movie, uh, Chris Pine plays a bard named Edgin, who's a member of the Harpers, which is sort of this leftist artist faction who creates a lot of enemies for themselves. And of course, this results in uh, his wife getting killed. And so then he just kind of starts getting a little uh, loose and just being a sort of purposeless rogue. Uh, with uh, a barbarian named Holga, who's played by Michelle Rodriguez, and a sorcerer uh, played by Justice Smith, and also a uh, a rogue named uh, Forge Fitzwilliam, played by Hugh Grant. And um, uh, long story short... uh, Ed wants to get a uh, tablet of reawakening to bring back his dead wife, uh, but they get captured. Uh, everyone else escapes. Um, then they're in jail for a long time, and of course, then they escape jail uh, by by um, using one of the judges who is an Aarakocra, which is a type of flying. Uh, bird humanoid and just like throwing him out the window while hanging on to him uh, and uh, then they find out that Hugh Grant is actually a traitor who's allied himself with the Red Wizards of Thay which are uh, like a evil uh, magical cult and uh, then um, then uh, Druid shows up who's a member of the Emerald Enclave which is like the nature based faction of Dungeons and Dragons that's like trying to save the environment and they've got their own problems with Hugh Grant. So they team up, um, at a certain point, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name from, uh, Bridgerton. Regé Jean Page. Regé Jean Page shows up as a NPC paladin, which is great because he's talking, all the other characters in the movie are kind of talking like regular people, but <laughs> this guy has that non-player character, like, let me take you on the journey of a quest of a <laughs> lifetime. And, and like, all these, like, sort of, like, like aphorisms that are, like, very, like, profound sounding. And it's just getting on everyone else's nerves, which is really funny. 
But, of course, like any true NPC, he kind of just abandons them for no clear reason, and the movie continues, and I feel like that's a pretty good pretty good plot summary. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, so, you know, obviously, I guess, like I said, the, as with Super Mario, this is very much a go-to-the-place-get-the-thing. And I did have a much better time with this one, although it did feel like it could have lost about 20 minutes along the way, just because there's just a lot of a lot of incident and uh, and and kind of, you know, um, sequential narrative in terms of this thing happens and then this thing happens and this other thing happens. Um, but I get where they are trying to be true to the game and give you these different characters that have different abilities and different levels of abilities and having to work together and solve problems and all that kind of stuff. So as somebody who is a DM, were you watching this thinking like, that's how this was written, the way that you would plan out a campaign? Well, the beauty of D&D is you can plan as much as you want, but that's not necessarily the direction the players are going to take it in. And what this movie does pretty well is it it shows the sort of elaborate plan-making phase of D&D, which is kind of really where the game is played and where all the players get to know each other and... and uh, and get to know each other's characters, but also just bond as people. And especially as a dungeon master, I have to remind myself to allow that to happen, even when I know the thing that they're planning could never possibly work and doesn't even like matter. <laughs> like it, <Right. laughs> and that also, and you also get that in this movie where they make elaborate plans to go somewhere, and then they're just like, "Oh, it's, it's not. Uh, it's not here." Stop. That wasn't what I thought was going to happen because uh, they didn't figure some other detail out. And I thought that was really well done. And also sort of the funnest part of this movie is them like figuring out how to use uh, like a, a teleportation wand or uh, there's a really long extended sequence where a druid's using wild shape, which is the ability to turn into different animals. Mm, yeah. um, and uh so I think that was very true to the game experience, but it's funny, you know, the thing I love so much about Dungeons and Dragons is it's a story that you create with seven people and the audience is always participating. It's I sort of think of it almost like experimental theater with uh, sort of fueled by entropy. And, it, and <laughs> so you create this, the entropy of dice, dice rolling, uh, for success and failure. And I sort of think of D&D as very anti-capitalist because only those seven people that are playing are able to really experience this story. I mean, you can listen to people playing D&D or you can watch a movie that's set in the D&D world. But for me, that's never going to be as much fun as being in it myself with my friends creating a story for each other. So even though I like really enjoy, like I enjoy the movie, it was a lot of fun. It's like not, it's, it's never going to be able to take the place of the actual thing for me. You know what I mean? Sure. So, so I think you don't listen to a lot of podcasts where they do this. Sort of oh thing. no. I listen to actual play podcasts every day of my life but <laughs> <Okay>. it's still <laughs> not as much not fun <laughs> as playing D&D like literally but at this like I can't even really imagine anything more fun than playing D&D to me personally that's just me but 
Uh, <laughs> but no, yeah, I listen to a lot of actual play podcasts, and they help me a lot as a dungeon master, and and like seeing what other dungeon masters do and how they handle situations, and a lot of it is just you know being really good at reading people's emotions and just like interpersonal stuff. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, it, I think it's interesting to sort of tackle this as a as an IP. That's the thing in movies now is like taking a thing that people know from another medium or whatever else and refurbish it or or reboot it or or turn it into a movie. And the thing about D&D is that it's not like it, it's not like turning Clue into a movie where you have to have the rooms and the weapons and the people. Like D&D is sort of whatever the people playing it make it into. So you have some boundaries and some categories, but for the most part, it's a thing that's constantly being reinvented by the players. Yes, that's right. Every time you start a new campaign, you are creating a new dimension in the multiverse, a new, <laughs> a new world of possibility. But uh, it was it was very well done, and and uh, Chris Pine is very dry in this movie and yeah. uh, very funny, and uh, Michelle Rodriguez is pretty great too. But um, but uh, it'll be interesting to see. It used to be that when like a superhero, like when the Spider Man film came out, it was a big spike to the comics industry, and people started getting interested in comics kind of again. Mm-hmm. But then. Now, when superhero movies come out, there's, like, no correlation because what would happen is in the, you know, when Spider-Man came out, people would say, oh, I want to know more about the Green Goblin. And so they would go to the comic book store and buy a bunch of comics about the Green Goblin, whereas now everyone kind of knows there's going to be more movies, (laughs) more stuff (laughs) that's going to happen, so they don't really even bother, like looking at the source material, but D and D doesn't have that history on film and media. So I'm, I'll be curious to see if it has any impact on the level of interest. But the thing is the level of interest right now is really high. And I think that's because everyone's sick of looking at a screen. It used to be really novel in the nineties and two thousands to play video games because you were watching them evolve right in front of your eyes. Like the first Mario game, it looks like hieroglyphics. And then 10 years later, (laughs) Mario 64 is in like a fully rendered 3d environment. So that was really exciting. But now with the phones and the computers and everything, people really like playing things or it's become novel to do something where you're playing it with, you know, figurines and pieces of paper and even just in your imagination that's really where the game of D is played is in the collective imagination of the players and all the maps and the everything else they're just tools to point your imagination in certain directions i noticed that in the past few years a uh just by paying attention you know to the culture uh sort of at large there does seem to be a bit of a a, a cool D and D kind of renaissance going on, oh, yeah. where people seem to be talking about it more, playing it more. the The way it was, you know, uh, understood by the culture when I was a kid was: you are a weirdo, you are a loner, you are high, you have a problem, or you you worship Satan, and that yes. is you're going to wind up like Tom Hanks wandering around the sewers, and that is Dungeons and Dragons. But um, I, now you know I I see it 
more places and I see a, uh, what's the right word? A kind of gay pride about it. You know, like there is, and I'm not, not the, you know, I don't mean anything that's gay about the game, but like, you know, just this, a, 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 a cultural swell of, yeah, this is a thing that we've been doing for 50 years and it's fun and it's cool. And, and we are cool. <laughs> For participating well, in it. I mean, it. playing as a character is a form of drag, I guess. But yeah. it's not, I mean, it's, look, it's, as much as I'd love to give the, all the credit to the gays, I mean, like, I think of the McElroys as being real pioneers. Yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. Know, that's, another, of that's one of the examples that I'm, I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Of really bring it out in, into the into the consciousness. And, you know, like, they had a very, they made a, got a very successful podcast out of it. And I think, and you see it sort of ripple out to, like, other comics. And, you know, I think at... At comedy events now, there will be a session where you'll watch a bunch of comedians play D&D for like three hours or whatever. Oh, sure. I mean, I think what Dave is tapping into and and sort of a little bit what I was talking to with Mario, you know, playing queerly is this idea of escapism. And to quote uh, Ursula Le Guin, the direction of escape is always towards freedom. So... What we're seeing here, when you're able to, in with the example of D and D, create your own fa- it's fantasy. You're creating mm-hmm. your own fantasy world, and so you can imagine, imagine almost a better world where we can have you know non-binary demons being friends with cisgendered dwarves, you know, or whatever it is, you know, even beyond just the LGBT scope. It's it's a space for for utopia, uh, yeah, yeah, or just how you want to see people acting in the world. Well, you know, I, I you're absolutely right, and I, I think that the movie is doing a pretty good job of, you know, uh, not constraining itself to the usual, you know. Usually when you see a property brought to film, they're very kind of uh, walled in about what does and doesn't fly. And I think the the movie kind of lays the groundwork for other movies that might follow being anything they want to be and going in any direction they want to. And so that, I think, ultimately is what makes it really true to the game. Um, We need to let you go, but any final thoughts? Oh, um... Well, it's good to see, just like with the new Lord of the Rings show, which I adored, the um, a more multiracial fantasy universe. And there wasn't any gay representation that's popping into my mind, but the thing about fantasy is that it sometimes can be even more expansive than what we have in our real world. So, like, th- this movie, like, we've got Holga the Barbarian, who's clearly kind of got a fetish for, like, hobbits or, like, really short men, you know? Like, there's these sort of kinks going on uh, subtextually that I think are also really great. But uh, anyway, if you are interested in me or my work, you can follow me on Instagram at TopNotchGamer. That's Gamer spelled G A Y M E R. And uh, I just drew a bunch of Power Rangers, so DM me for pricing and availability. <laughs> and also, uh, if you're in the Philadelphia area, I was interviewed about DD uh, for the Philadelphia Enquirer, and I think that that is going to be in print on Sunday, and they may even use some photos from my wedding. 
Oh, nice. Okay. Nice. Well, there you go. Uh, Johnny, always a pleasure. We miss you terribly, but uh, thanks for, for giving us some time today and giving us your very expert testimony on both of these. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love to talk. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take care. Sir. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. And yes, we're back. We are. Uh, I mentioned air briefly during that interview. We're going to be talking about that one probably next time. Next time. Uh, also, next time we're planning to be talking about the new film from Kelly Reichart, another uh, collaboration with Michelle Williams, the comedy showing up. Um, once we both get those seen, we'll talk about them here. You've seen them both. I, I have. am absolutely seeing the new Kelly Reichart film uh, this week. And I plan to see Air, although I'm not super interested in seeing Air. Well, it, it, I'm a little more interested in seeing Air than I was in, let's say, Super Mario, in which I have zero interest. Sure. Uh, I will also probably eventually get around to the Dungeons and Dragons movie, just because everyone seems to be enjoying it so much. And, you know. I will say that Air is a satisfying movie. Hmm. And, you know, I know about as much as you do about Michael Jordan and or shoes. So, right, right. And I still enjoyed myself. Uh, I was deeply unsatisfied by a film that we both saw yes. this past week called Paint. Yeah. And it's the new uh, film starring Owen Wilson. Yes. It is written and directed by Britt McAdams. Uh, it stars Owen Wilson and a cast of, uh, you know, comedic character actors, Stephen Root, Wendy McClendon Covey, Michaela Watkins, other folks. Uh, enough to call them a bevy, I don't even want to say. Yeah, sure. Uh, oh my God, I hate this film. It's really <laughs> annoying. <laughs> I really hated this movie um okay so owen wilson plays a guy named carl nargle now that's a comedy name because i guess they perhaps thought maybe they wanted to do a bob ross biopic and then change their minds or couldn't get you know a sign off on that and honestly it's good that they didn't yeah. because if that if this was the level of derision and mockery that they were going to bring to the story of Bob Ross, well-known uh, uh, public television paint instructor, the idea I think is, what if Bob Ross were a creep? Not just a creep, but like a a a, a an, an egomaniacal hack, self-absorbed hack who you know, just wants to do it with a bunch of women and... Okay. (laughs) This is the story of a man named Carl Nargle who is a star on Vermont public television. Yes. And into... uh, He's such a star that people from all walks of life are glued to his... Apparently, live television program where he paints things. Apparently, yes. I, never in my life have I known public television to be uh, uh, outside of a telethon live because you're different PBS affiliates. 
yeah. show those programs at different times well, they never of even, the day. They don't even tell you if other PBS stations air this program. They never tell you. He's a just thing. a huge. He is the toast of Burlington, right? And so people are watching, and they're watching in nursing homes. They're watching in bars, and the and, and PBS Burlington decides, well, you know, he's our one draw. So what if we had another painter come along and have their own painting show too? Not as a competitive thing, but people seem to enjoy watching yeah. painting shows. To keep them tuned in. So they bring in a woman who's, uh, I think her name is Ambrosia. Yes. Played by Sierra Renee. She's young. She's energetic. She's a go-getter. She paints two paintings in a, in a show rather than one. This threatens uh, Mr. Nargle. And then stuff happens. Yeah, it's it's kind of this, this one joke thing of like, what if Owen Wilson played Bob Ross? And then they didn't come up with anything after that except let's make him terrible. Let's make him terrible, Bob Ross. And then make it all about how everything that he represents is also terrible. Mm. So, you know, he is a soft-spoken man, you know, a sensitive, soft-spoken man of the 1970s era. And he drives around in a... Van in a brown seventies van, and everyone waves at him, and he listens to soft music of the nineteen seventies, which oh. is in inherently hilarious yes. and stupid. Let's make it, it, <laughs> John Denver should sue his the, his estate. The, the ghost of John Denver, yes, should haunt the, the people estate of John Denver, who have decided that the mere presence of a John Denver song is hilarious. It is now a lazy go-to. You were talking about. Uh, holding out for a hero mm. being a lazy go-to uh, for you know an, a pump you up montage. John Denver songs are now the lazy music supervisor's choice for doesn't this suck? Yeah. And isn't this corny? Isn't this corny and isn't it dumb? And aren't these gangsters who are about to mow down a bunch of people hilarious because as they drive to the scene of their impending murder, slaughter, rampage, they're listening to, you know... Uh, Annie's song. Annie's song. Yeah. I... That doesn't happen in this movie, but can't it's happened say I ever movies. bought a John Denver record when I was a kid, but he was no more or less embarrassing than anything else in the 1970s and i'll tell you all something every decade every decade (laughs) every generation every generation has cultural product that they will later decide was silly or simplistic or uncool or embarrassing and fine be embarrassed by stuff that doesn't make the stuff itself embarrassing it just makes it a product of its era. You want to be embarrassed by something? Go back to the films of the 1930s where everyone was running around in blackface all the time. <laughs> How about that? John Denver. I never thought I would be this defensive of John Denver, but movies just, I think, really abuse the notion of like, yeah, like, look, play feelings. Play Afternoon Delight if you want to goof on 70s music. Why? Like, because that Why? Like, because why uh, okay you're right maybe don't i'm right that's business. right that's because i'm about, right how about convoy can they play convoy convoy's hilarious okay <laughs> disco duck like there are ways disco to do duck that. is an objectively bad song yes <laughs> but leave john denver out of it so um he performed this, with the muppets this film has 
I think about three or four different moments in it where I laughed. Mm-hmm. Uh, although it's only been 36 hours since I've seen the film and I can no longer remember <laughs> what they were, what those laughs were. It mild chuckles at best. It's, it's a, it is itself an embarrassment. Yeah. And I, uh, uh, the, the spirit of Bob Ross and his memory deserves better than yeah. this. Like there needs to be a legit documentary or the prep. Maybe there even is, I don't even know. There needs to be a, a, a record correction on, you know, this guy. It would be like making a movie about Mr. Rogers and then making him like a womanizing, you know, I don't know what. Coke yeah. snorting. Yeah, you like, know. you know, greedy pig. Yeah. You know? I I like, uh, not that I, I like, that's a, the sentence that I did not intend to begin. I think that someone has already pitched that idea. Probably. And it's a matter of time until someone makes it. <laughs> but, but. Anything sort of sweet and gentle uh, is open for uh, skewering. Apparently, there was recently a uh, Winnie the Pooh murder rampage movie. I'm never going to see it. No thanks. Uh, But like, I, you know, (laughs) paint, everybody. (laughs) Don't bother. Don't bother. All right. Oh, can I say one more thing? Sure. Uh, this film uh, mocks the idea. Here's here's some other things that are terrible and wrong about this film. It mocks the idea of the regional artist. Uh, yeah. And and I don't know why. There's no reason. Um, there is this pervasive atmosphere in this film of aren't these people hilarious for living in a small town and thinking that they're doing anything this you know it was it reminded me of why i've never found waiting for guffman all that funny uh-huh. because i feel like really these are the people you're going to go after like th- this is the this is the the hill you're going to die on is mocking like small town theater people with pretensions of having talent like it just it feels to me like such aggressive punching down I don't think of Waiting for Guffman as punching down because as a 13-year-old, I participated in a regional, in a, in a, in a uh, regional small town theater production and everyone in uh, that um, that play was exactly like the people oh, those, Waiting for those Guffman. Those folks exist. I'm and not so, saying they don't. I don't have a problem with that. I just feel like as a, as a target for satire in a, in a major motion picture, it, it just seems like... A gnat with a can. I was the kid in an Edward Albee comedy, just yeah. so let you know. Yeah, I, but I, I know I'm in the minority <laughs> on that one. People love that movie. but um, There are three other films, uh, one of which Alonzo has actually seen, but we'll get to that at the end. Oh, okay. Uh, the other two that Alonzo has not seen uh, is the latest from Quentin Dupieux, and yes. I know that I'm saying his name incorrectly Dupieux. because I am not French and I have a very hard time uh, pronouncing French things. I don't even know if I'm saying it right, but I think it's Dupieux. Uh, you, although last night while we were watching uh, Call My Agent, you did uh, explain some things to me about the different uses of the word yes ah, in true. French. The difference between two years of high school French, baby. The difference between oui and ouais mm-hmm. and si. Yes. 
why don't you tell everyone what those <laughs> things are? Since, I mean, it, it doesn't really matter. Although they do say, oh, a lot in smoking causes yeah. coughing. So a little, little education corner. This is and, and if you speak French and I'm getting this wrong, write us at linoleumpodcast at gmail.com and tell me this is what I remember from high school French. We oui is a straightforward yes. C is a thing that you use when you are contradicting the nature of the question. So if somebody says, you don't want bread, do you? And you do want bread. You I would do, say, in fact, si. want bread. See, si. see, si. give me some uh... croissant. Yeah. Give me uh, give me three of them. Exactly. <laughs> and a baguette. Uh, and then we is yeah, basically. Yeah. So it's less formal. It's a more, you know, slangy we. Oh, someone on call my agent last night and said we. And I was like. All right, stop the <laughs> pause because I keep hearing that pronunciation of that word and I don't know why. And so now I now I do. All right, Smoking Causes Coughing is yes. the name of the movie. Uh, if you've seen any of uh, Quentin Dupuis' films, uh, Rubber. Rubber or Mandibles. Reality. Buckskin, you know, uh, you understand that he... Is operating. Cuckoo bananas. He is operating in his own weird little world. He does uh, films that make no logical sense in terms of you know what they're about. Like Rubber is about a sentient uh, tire car tire that rolls around and murders people telepathically. It is a serial killing tire, and this is a very funny film that I enjoy a lot. Uh, Mandibles is about two big, dumb, oafish losers who are trying to steal things and who find a gigantic uh, fly. And it's like the size of a pig, this fly. And it's a puppet that is controlled, like, you know, uh, uh, animatronically in the film. And it's about them bumbling around and making nonsense happen. Right. I don't even remember what reality is about. That's the one I've seen. <laughs> so this film is about a Power Rangers style team of superhero Avengers. They are the Tobacco uh, Force. That's their name, Tobacco Force. Each one of them has a name like benzene, nicotine, menthol, <laughs> uh, uh, mercury, and they use the negative power of cigarette ingredients to vanquish a variety of evildoers, specifically at the very beginning of this film, a big turtle kaiju, an evil, like an evil Gamera, basically. Uh-huh. Uh, their boss is a, a rat, which is a, a, a another puppet here. Okay, like Ninja Turtles. Yeah, their boss is a rat, uh, has some green drool constantly falling out of its mouth when it speaks. And the rat gets them all. After they kill the, the, the turtle kaiju, after they vanquish that evil-doing turtle, the boss calls them on the video phone and says, uh, team spirit is low. Your, your, your cohesion as a unit is low. And I'm sending you on a team-building retreat to boost your, uh, your team spirit. So they go to a very uh, remote place in the French countryside, where there is a, a hut that is built into the ground. It's very modern. It's very futuristic. There is a 
uh, a kitchen area, and when you open the refrigerator doors, there's any kind of food you want, including a woman who lives inside the refrigerator who will cook it up for you and serve it to you. <laughs> and she lives there in that room 24-7. <laughs> so um, when they get there, their information robot that travels with them all the time rolls itself off a pier into a lake, uh, drowning itself, because its mission is over. It's been programmed to do that. And the rat boss sends a new robot out to, uh, you know, give them the assistance that they need. But this robot is defective. It doesn't do anything that it's supposed to do. It understands no commands. It makes every mistake. It's useless. You'll find out why at the end of the film. It's a spoiler. I won't be giving it away. And then they all sit around a campfire and tell stories. <laughs> in the costumes? Yeah. They never take off their costumes. Oh. They sleep in their helmets. <laughs> and they, uh, they tell stories. And one of them was uh, a story about... Now, you can call this perhaps an anthology film if it were, in fact, made by a variety of people, but it's not. So what you get is a framing device of everyone sitting around and telling these, you know... Uh, 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 stories like the Canterbury Tales or something. <laughs> and uh, one of them is a story about a woman who goes on vacation with her husband and another couple. Uh, the One of the husbands and one of the other women in the couple is played by uh, the guy who starred, I'm blanking on his name, I'm very sorry. He's a French comedy actor. He's got a, uh, he's had a TV show over there for a while. He was in Mandibles as one of the doofuses. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other, his wife is played by uh, Adele Exarchopoulos, who huh. was also in Mandibles, who, if you haven't seen Mandibles, if my description of it didn't uh, sell you, you should know that Adele Exarchopoulos is in it as a woman who shrieks at the top of her lungs every single word of dialogue that she has to say. Is she playing Miss France? D kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yes. France! <laughs> So, uh, but she steals the whole movie mm. because she just does nothing but like shout everything that she's saying. Uh, so anyway, uh, the woman who goes on vacation finds a uh, sensory deprivation helmet that allows her a moment of peace among these uh, other three people who she finds out while well, she puts the helmet on that she actually hates. And then she murders all of them one by one. <laughs> Uh, a child wanders up to the uh, to the campfire and says, I have a story to tell you. A nice fish was swimming in the water, and he couldn't see anything. He was looking for food. So he went up to the surface, and he saw a man pouring poison, into, poison chemicals into the lake. The end. <laughs> you see this story all, you know, acting out. Again, another puppet, a fish right. puppet. <laughs> and then comes a story that is told by a talking barracuda that they catch in the lake and, and grill on the stove. And while it is being grilled and dying, it tells another story that is so outrageously full of guts and puke <laughs> that I don't want to tell you anything about it because it's the best part of the movie. It's the most disgusting part of the movie. It is mind-boggling the thing that happens in the story. I'm not going to give it away. 
Finally, after telling each other the stories, they are sent on one more mission. To save the world. And I'm not going to give anything more away than that. Uh, I love this guy's movies. They are so dumb. <laughs> they follow their own internal logic, <laughs> let's say. <laughs> they are about, I, I think quite often they're about whatever you want them to be about. And what I think this one is about is uh, environmental catastrophe. Mm-hmm. And... You may disagree with me if you see it. You may think it's about something entirely else. You may think it's about, you know, the trouble of bureaucracy. (laughs) You may think it's about, you know, uh, the trouble of collectivism. You would not be wrong. It's up to you. (laughs) (laughs) But it's called Smoking Causes Coughing. It is currently in theaters and streaming. Yes. So you can watch it at home as soon as you like. I had a really good time. Oh, it's very short as well. So that's, you know, if you like a movie under 90 minutes, <laughs> I, I've got one for you. The next one is called How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Hmm. It is a narrative feature based on a nonfiction book. Huh. Uh, the writer Andreas Malm wrote a book uh, published in 2021 called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, Learning to Fight in a World on Fire. It is not, as some might uh, wonder, a, an explanation of how to literally blow up a pipeline. Mm-hmm. It is, in fact, a book about why you should blow up a pipeline <laughs> for the sake of saving the planet from climate change. Now, this film is uh, directed by Daniel uh, Goldhaber. I guess I'm saying his name right. Mm-hmm. Uh, written by uh, Ariella Bearer and Jordan uh, Sciol and Daniel Goldhaber. So it's a narrative film based on a nonfiction film. This is the story of... Nonfiction film or book? Sorry, nonfiction book. Um, the book is meant to convince readers to take drastic, radical, interruptive action against the major powers, corporate, corporate, governmental, that are destroying the planet. The film is about some young people who decide to do it. Mm. Uh, it's a cast of, I wouldn't call them unknowns, like Sasha Lane is probably the most well-known person here. Up-and-comers. And, and also uh, the actor... Lucas Gage. Named, oh, yeah, sorry. Lucas Gage is in this as well. But Marcus Scribner is probably the person most people know the most because he is on Blackish and he is also on Grown-ish. Ah. So he's been on TV for years uh, in, that, in, that, in those series. So... A bunch of young people, all up-and-comers, yeah, uh, decide they're going to blow up a pipeline. They're going to go to West Texas to a pipeline that is being built. It does not have oil in it yet, Mm -hmm. uh, and there aren't people around yet. They don't want to kill anybody. They don't want to cause environmental destruction while they're doing uh, (laughs) eco-terrorism. They just want to. And they do have a big conversation in the film. Like, are we terrorists? And half of them are like, yeah, we are. And the other's like, well, no, we're not. We're just activists. And I'm like, well, you're going to blow something up. So, mm, maybe. The, uh, 
they decide to do it. And the film is, uh, it's a caper, really. Mm. It is a suspenseful caper about people who are going to do a thing and how they get to that thing, how they get to the place where they can make it happen, the troubles they have along the way, the near misses they have along the way, the danger involved of, of planning and executing this thing, um, not just physically, but internally. Mm. I won't go into any more detail than that. I don't want to give away stuff. But um, the film is on their side. And I think that is sort of a radical stance to take. And it shouldn't be a radical stance. Right. It should be a... It should be a situation where, you know, uh, 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 where we are pro people doing whatever it takes yeah. to stop the, the machinery of destruction. Um, now, is the act of blowing up something that isn't functioning yet and has no people around it, is that violence? That is a subject that the film brings up. Uh, and, and that's doesn't that, seem to have a co- not a, a conclusive a conclusive answer to. Well, that was the thing that came up a lot during the the protests in the summer of 2020, yeah. where you had apologists on the right trying to equate destruction of property with you know destruction of human life, right? And and somehow saying that you know oh we're not going to talk about like random people and innocent people being shot by the police, but let's talk about these windows at a Starbucks getting broken. Right. You know? Right. So what you have here is a film that is in the spirit of, you know, late sixties, early seventies protest cinema. Mm-hmm. And as that, I think it's really effective. There is some stuff uh, in the film that I can't say that I care for. Uh, some of it, Involves depicting, uh, as you could call it, stereotypical tropes about race and gender that will fly by, I think, most people, Hmm. most viewers. The only reason it didn't fly by me is because I just finished reading (laughs) the latest book by Amber Ruffin and her sister Lacey Lamar. Hmm. (laughs) There are two books from them now. Uh, And in the book, they describe something that... I hadn't really ever heard of before. And now that I've read about it, I immediately saw it in this film. And it's, 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 it's a, you know, it is a, it is a, 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 a thing that again, I don't want to talk about because I'd be giving away a plot point. I see. Um, so if you see the film and you think you know what this is and you have read the Amber Ruffin, Lacey Lamar book, maybe we can talk later. Um, But again, those constitute spoilers, and what I do like about the film quite a bit is the structure, because it jumps back and forth uh, in time. It gives you information you need when you need it, Mm -hmm. even though some of that information, and some of that information is meant to be a a series of reveals, is actually pretty well telegraphed throughout the film. And I think that could have also been handled a little, with a little more subtlety. Mm -hmm. Uh, but overall, it's the kind of film that will make people argue. <laughs> so I'm in favor of that. Sure. Uh, it is definitely on the side of climate action and climate justice, and I'm also in favor of that. Now, what I would really like next is a documentary that shows me 
how to help in ways that are doable for a nearly 60-year-old person who is very slow moving on a good day and currently has arthritis and has an aversion to being exploded. <laughs> they also serve. Um, I, you know, when I heard about this movie, the first thing I thought of was... It's all fine and good to be young and gung-ho and I'm going to carry some... Uh, Gelignites. Yeah, I'm going to carry 600 sticks of TNT to a remote location. In West Texas. In West Texas. Uh, I was reminded of, the, speaking of Kelly Reichardt, her movie of 10 years ago, Night Moves. Yes. Which was also, also about young environmentalists trying yeah. to blow something up. Yeah. So that would appear to be the only thing we could think of, <laughs> is blowing things up. Now, I've not read this book. I want to read the book now. I want to oh. understand. Maybe the book tells me what I can do as an old, slow person. Maybe. Uh, to assist in uh, taking, you know, direct action. Yes. Uh, Sticking it to the man. Yeah. It, uh, some kind of sabotage. Sure. I, I, you know, I do love a sabotage. Yes. And um, anyway, uh, now there is one more film and you have seen the film and we don't have time to talk about it now because we have to stop this recording and move on to the next podcast because Margie is on her way over ah. and we're about to do that. So we're going to save it for later okay. next week and we will get to it. Um, do you do, do do time for letters? Or? We don't even have time for letters. Okay. So we'll, we'll have that I, next time as well. We'll do that next time too. All right. Well, listen, thanks everybody for listening. Um, we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash oh, yeah, linoleum knife. So much stuff happening over there for as little as a dollar a month. You get extra content, including linoleum knife presents more linoleum knife, where we go in deep on a, one single title, uh, LKTV, a podcast of the television, linoleum knife and fork, a food podcast hosted by two film critics, uh, linoleum nights, a weekly show where we talk about anything and everything and even do some swears. Um, more than a, more than sometimes. Yes. Uh, yeah, we a have lot, a, lot of, a lot of them. Uh, a, a monthly club meeting where we all watch a movie, stream a movie together online and, and hang out in the chat room to talk about it. Uh, lots and lots of things. If you like this, why not have more of it? Linoleum Knife. Oh, sorry. Uh, Patreon.com slash <laughs> Linoleum Knife. Uh, please check out my other podcasts, Breakfast All Day. The podcast and a YouTube show with Christy Lemire. Uh, Maximum Film on the Maximum Fun Network. And if you... Uh, uh, became uh, signed up or renewed on the recent Max Fund Drive. Thank you for that. Uh, and uh, um, uh, Deck the Hallmark, where I pop in every Monday and we talk about, at the moment we're talking about 2022 Christmas movies from other networks that were not um, Hallmark or Lifetime. Uh, you can uh, subscribe to this show for free at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star review. We'll read it on the air. Also, leave us positive feedback in the many places where we stream, including uh, Spotify and Google Play, Apple Music, uh, sorry, Amazon Music, um, you know, Castbox, Podbean, uh, the uh, iHeartRadio, you name it. We're we're almost everything. Uh, you can drop us a line at linoleumpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us at linoleumcast on social media. Thank you, Blue, for our wonderful theme music. Follow what he's up to at blueBLEU.bandcamp.com. We are in a hurry, but we'll be back next time with more. Until then, goodbye.